Hello, hello, everybody. The episode you're about to listen to is not just about a special and unique person. This is not just about a special and unique organization and mission. What I hope it is, is something that's a bit transformative, a bit inspiring, a bit motivating. Because what it is, it's talking about how we face challenges, pain, and things in our life that we can very easily say are unfair and insurmountable. And it comes from a bit of an unlikely source. You're going to hear from him himself about his mission and his organization, but they focus on pediatric illness and cancer. Not only do they help children and their families manage and deal with this overwhelming adversity, but he transforms them into teachers, inspiring others. It gives them a purpose, a mission. It's so genuine. I can only speak for myself, but hearing his own story and hearing how this mission, this initiative, this organization has really spread to all four corners of the globe. When you would think that someone who's in such a tough situation, maybe they can white knuckle it and deal with it. Not only do they do that, they go way beyond that and become inspiring for others. This is not just about cancer. This is about how we all manage pain, suffering, unfairness, things that we think are insurmountable. And it really is up to us how we respond. I really genuinely hope that you get as much out of this episode as I did. Before we get into it, I want to just express my gratitude for those who take a moment to rate, share, review, etc. regarding the show. It is the primary way in which word spreads and people get to hear us and hopefully help more people. So thank you so much. Without further ado, this is Mental Filter. Welcome back to Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to many interesting people about many interesting things all through the lens of mental health. And as you heard in the introduction, I'm very grateful and fortunate to be able to uh, Rabbi Goldberg, otherwise known as Rabbi G, you'll hear from him in a moment, uh, about a wonderful organization called Kids Kicking Cancer. And our mission today is to not just talk about the wonderful organization, but see how each one of us can really take something from what this organization is doing, what these families are going through, what these children are going through as an inspiration for everything that is challenging us. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. And Rabbi Goldberg, if you could please introduce yourself to everybody listening. Such a pleasure to be here. Elimela Goldberg, everyone calls me. Rabbi G. I'm the founder and director of Kids Kicking Cancer, which began in 1999. So we're now well past our 20th year. And uh, the program that we've developed is actually called the Hero Circle, because although we started with children with cancer, working, working with children with all different types of pain syndrome, including trauma. But the key to the program are three words, power, peace, purpose, that no matter what we face in our lives, we can breathe in this amazing energy, this godly light. We call it in the martial arts, ki or chi or tanagadala, prana, nishama, 
we have the ability to breathe in this light and push out the feelings of darkness, of pain, fear, anger, despair, depression. And we ask the children that we work with, what's your purpose? The children yell out to teach the world. So I'm really privileged to be here, not as Rabbi G, but as the representative of children all over the planet with a message that can be extraordinarily important from the lens of mental health. That's amazing. And I'm looking forward to getting into all three of those. And there's so many people, not just in the world that you're working in and not just in the mental health world where I'm working in, where people don't feel like they have a purpose. And I guess my first takeaway is that no matter the situation, having a purpose is really up to you. It is so much determined by how we approach life and, and really literally where we put our brain. My first teacher in the world of kids kicking cancer was my daughter. At the um, age of almost one year, it was a week before her first birthday, when I was teaching in Los Angeles. For those of your listeners who aren't aware, Los Angeles is located very close to the United States. I had the horrid experience of getting that phone call. And there isn't anyone in life who's immune from that one phone call that can change her life. We had brought our daughter to the pediatrician that week. She was getting lethargic, running a small fever, uncomfortable. And the doctor told us there's a bad virus going around LA. A lot of kids have it. She'll be fine. It might take a week or two. That Friday, I was giving a class for my students. These are university age young men. And it was the biblical reading of the binding of Isaac. And I asked my students, what exactly was the challenge? If God himself comes and says, take your son and very clear who you want and what you have to do, what do you say to God? We'll do lunch. My people call your people. Those were expressions not yet created and certainly not appropriate to deliver to the master of the universe. So I explained to my students, if you look at the biblical text, the real challenge was that Isaac at that point didn't know where he was going. He thought it was a holiday. So he would be walking up the mountain. He was 37 years old at the time, not as depicted in the pictures. He was walking up the mountain singing and dancing. And the Bible says, they both walked as one. Abraham somehow found the strength to traverse the mountain singing and dancing. And then Isaac turns around to his dad and he says, one second, dad, you've got the wood, you've got the fire. Those are all available at the Home Depot of Mesopotamia. Where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham responds, you're it. And they continue, and the Bible repeats that phrase, and they both walked up as one. Here are two people going to the most extraordinarily challenging, overwhelming, inconceivable, and they were walking up the mountain singing and dancing. That's what I told my students, who were just maybe a year or two younger than I. I'd figured out all of life. (laughs) It's all about having the strength to walk up the mountain singing and dancing. And then I got the phone call, and this will make some of your listeners afraid, perhaps challenged, but I assure you the situation no longer exists. But there was a time that telephones actually hung on walls and sat on desks. (laughs) It no longer exists. Don't threat. Don't have to reach for your cell phone. You're okay. But there was a time that it didn't. And I had to go to the office and it was my wife in a very, very emphatic voice. We're going to take our daughter back to the doctor. There's something wrong. He said, no, we were just there two days ago. It's the eve of Shabbat, of the Sabbath. We went back to the doctor. A few minutes before the beginning of Sabbath, we got that call. The doctor, in a very unassuredly voice, told us, we have to rule out leukemia. Now, mind you, today, 
pediatric leukemia is a very treatable disease. It wasn't the same thing in 1981. So we went back to the hospital and that morning we realized that leukemia was anything but excluded. And the technician came into the room, I remember it was like yesterday, and he says to me, the doctors want another picture of the spleen. So I carried my daughter downstairs and he turns around to me when we went into the, it's literally in the bowels of Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. He says to me, we're a little short-staffed. Do you mind just fastening your daughter's arms and legs to the table? And I look at the clock, everyone in Los Angeles is reading about Abraham fastening Isaac to the altar. I know that Abraham did not use Velcro, but everything else felt the same. And I remember what I had told my students, not even 25 hours before that, that all of life is finding the strength to walk up the mountain singing and dancing. It's a lot easier to give a class. But she was an extraordinary little girl. At two years old, she told the docs at UCLA we were doing a bone marrow transplant. No medication today, please. And she'd tell the five-year-old kids in the clinic not to cry. So a number of years after she passed away, I found myself directing Camp Simcha with the High Lifeline. It's a camp for children at that point for, with oncology camp. And I came upon this five-year-old child in the clinic having his port access for his chemotherapy. I'm also a clinical assistant professor in pediatrics, so I teach the science side of this. I use a lot of big words. They let you teach in medical schools, and I don't know what they mean, but it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and I came across this five-year-old child, and we used to teach in medical school that there's a pain center in the brain. Today, we know it's not true. It says Ronald Melzick described an entire neural matrix. That means if someone's afraid, they're angry, there's no purpose to their pain, the nociception, the actual pain messages goes all the way up. We actually have functional MRIs to see the changes we make in the children's brains, which are significant. So this child is being held down by these nurses and it's a large syringe to plunge into his chest. And he is screaming something awful. It was so counterintuitive to me. I walked into the infirmary and I just yelled, wait. And they all stopped and they looked at me and I have a clue what I was going to say next. And I just said to the nurses, can you give me five minutes with this child? The nurse was happy to leave. The little kid looked at me like I was the governor. I just stayed his execution. And I walked over to this child and somehow got this inspiration. And I said to the little boy, I said, you know, I'm a black belt, which doesn't mean anything to a little kid. It's a wow. I said, you want me to teach you some karate? He almost jumped off the table. Explain to him the martial arts you learned that pain is a message that you don't have to listen to. You can breathe in this amazing light and push out the pain. Watch me. And five minutes later, we were doing a simple Tai Chi breathing technique. And 20 minutes later, they pulled out the needle and he looked up at the nurse and he said, did you do it yet? And that's when Kids Kicking Cancer was born. And we started with 10 children in Children's Hospital of Michigan. And now we see children in 105 facilities in eight countries with a vision of lowering the pain of 1 million children. I got chills as you were sharing that. Thank you. You could turn the heat up if you'd like in the room. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing that. And that's, wow, that, that's powerful. That parallel of it being that timing of that week's portion. And then... She was born on Parshat Chayi Sarah, which is the life and death of Sarah. And she died on Parshat Chayi Sarah. Two years later, Shnei Chayi Sarah. It really is a very meaningful connection that has multiple levels. I really appreciate what you said, you know, about pain. I can say that maybe not as in-depth and I'm going to learn here today too. I often will talk to people and will refer to it as what's our relationship with pain, 
That's sort of how I frame it. We decide what our relationship with pain. I don't necessarily think that our objective is to pretend that pain is not there. It's like you're trying to change the reality of something happening, but our relationship with pain is certainly within our purview. And that's an important thing to understand from a, even a point of view of the neurochemistry of pain, if, if I may, without boring too many of your listeners, but it's really fascinating. What happens is in medical school, I give a lecture called the ontology of oncology. Ontology is sense of self, oncology is cancer. I find that if you rhyme and you serve food, the docs are more likely to show up. Although serving food I found is more important than the rhyming. What happens very often in multiple syndrome is that we become the disease. It defines us. And so we become so connected to a symptom that it becomes us. So when people would come and they say, I'm angry or I'm depressed. So my response would be that you're not depressed. You're experiencing depression. You're not angry. You're experiencing anger. Those are chemical triggers that are causing changes within your body. That's making you feel that anger or that depression. But if you are defined by that, that's who you are, then you can't change it. I teach pediatricians that these are healthy kids with tumors. They're not cancer victims. And that sense of self is, is so extraordinary, but we actually have trademarked the term pain extraction versus distraction. Most of the tools for children in the hospitals, I just gave this lecture to 2000 psychosocial support personnel in hospitals around the United States. I'm doing, obviously it was a Zoom call. It was the National Association of Child Life Professionals. I was their keynote speaker because they ran out of other speakers. But a very important tool, what's really out there mostly, is what we call pain distraction, which means that it's evidence-based, clowns and, and dogs, and a lot of things that constrict. You can play a game with the child, get them not to think about it. You could get them desensitized towards a clinical practice that's going to hurt them, etc. And those are great. The distractive techniques are evidence-based and they're wonderful. The challenge is most of the time that children experience discomfort, nausea, great pain, they're in a clinic getting a, a blood draw, there's nobody there to distract them. And so we've coined the term pain extraction. We never use it to the kids because that sounds like getting your tooth out. But from an academic point of view, pain extraction is a, an awareness of the discomfort and a martial arts technique to actually articulate control over that discomfort. I'll give you an example, if I may. A lot of kids, I was just talking to a five-year-old kid in, in Woodmere yesterday. A lot of children have trypanophobia. They are sick and fearful of the needles and they get stuck a lot. Nobody likes needles. But the, the normal thing that happens is that when a person gets a blood draw or a needle that begins the blood draw, our muscles get tight. That's the normal response to pain, the very primal response. And so we teach the children as a martial artist how to use the breath to actually relax the body. We have a somatic breathing that's called a, we call it power breathing, a specific type to break stress. We call the breath break, B-R-A-K-E. How to use the breath to stop the adrenal gland from shooting out glucocorticoids. And if you behave in the interview, I'll actually teach your uh, listeners how to do it. But we explain to the child that when you experience the needle coming in, rather than pushing out against it, I, you know, I'm a little guy. Somebody pushes me, I push them back, I'm not going to get anywhere. If I pull them towards me, I can throw them where I want. In the martial arts, you learn that push is weak, pull is powerful. And that's a great model for all relationships. When you're pushing, you're not in control. 
when you could smile and pull somebody towards you, it's a different story. So explain to the children when the needle comes in, while it's natural push out against it, as a martial artist, you actually go like this. You pull in the discomfort and then blow it out the other way. So we literally have three-year-old kids in clinic going and taking control over needles that they had to be held down with before. But what's really so significant about this is in the neural matrix of pain is anxiety. And pain causes a feeling of suffering. And if a person feels like they're suffering, ironically, it actually lifts the pain up. The nociceptive message, the actual pain message extrapolates, gets bigger and bigger because the person is afraid of the pain. And so the greatest uh, challenge to pain is that we feel like, I can't handle this. I, I, what's next? I can't. The more that we can feel a sense of control over to do something towards that pain, you actually, and again, we have brain scans that indicate that you can actually lower and look in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. You have to look inside with special tools. You can't just peek inside, but you can see with imagery that you can change the messaging of pain. And so the sense of control, and even of all pains, we have these techniques in pain extraction to actually image the pain. We put a color on it, a shape, a form, and the children see as they're breathing in this light, this powerful light through the pain. And as they're breathing out, you can see the color of that pain come out of your mouth and it lowers pain. And martial arts is very focused on imagery. Before we break a board or a brick, we're actually supposed to see it break. If you see your hand break in the image, it's a bad sign. Don't do it. But the ability to take control rather than being controlled, you know, Kahneman did a famous study called duration neglect, just to be able to see changes. You could have the very same pain, sometimes even higher, but if you can give the experience of gently coming down from it versus a sharp decrease. So you see that at the duration, if the duration is creating a sense of, okay, I'm finally in control over the pain, it's less suffering, even if it's double the amount of pain. And these studies have been replicated. Kahneman's a Nobel Prize recipient. But the ability to use our mind and to engage the brain with the realization that we have a constant choice in our brain, that we get stuck in the places of pain and fear and anger. We call the lower, the reptilian part of the brain. And if you do, if you're stressed and you're like this, you're finished. You know, in the martial arts, I lecture to give presentations to companies. I tell these busy executives, if this guy is standing in front of you with a knife and this guy has a baseball bat, this guy has a chain all aimed at you, they teach us on the higher black belt levels to realize you got a problem. <laughs> but if you get tight, you can't deal with it all. The ability to flow, to be able to take this out and then pivot and do what you need to is all based on the breath taking control. When we are stressed, I tell parents all the time, if you want your kids not to hear a word you're saying, raise your voice. It works wonders. When we get stressed, we're pushing people away. We're not in control. The pyramidal cells that connect to the prefrontal cortex in the brain, they dissipate. You're not able to really be in control. And the challenge is we get mugged all the time by these fears and anxieties. They come from all the way back in our memory. You know, I was speaking to a clinician who deals with this every day. But it's so important to know we have the ability to take control over our lives by choosing which part of our brain we engage in. And we could actually use the breath and to identify stress and use the breath to relax our muscles because every time you relax your muscles, and I'm happy to talk about this more later, 
Every time you relax your muscles, you're actually stopping the stress chemicals. But in Hebrew, the term for happiness is sameach. Right? That's a term that Jews use around the world. A simcha, you go to a, a joyous occasion. Sameach is happy, but sameach is really some moach, where you put your brain. That's real happiness. The choice to recognize that we can take control and realize how vital the breath can be in asserting control. So we have this somatic breath called the Breg, as I mentioned a moment ago. When I first started Kids Kicking Cancer, my medical colleagues were a little bit, you know, don't emphasize the breath work, it's a little heebie-jeebie. Even though I left the active rabbinate, my greatest joy in life is to hear myself speak. So pre-COVID, I was doing grand rounds, like literally all over the planet. In Johannesburg, I brought the roof down. Really, two days later, the ceiling collapsed where the room I was in, so they never invited me back. But it's so important to recognize that the ability to take control, the ability to use that breath, because although originally, when I started breathing with heebie-jeebie, there isn't a hospital that I lecture at where there's not somebody who comes to me afterwards and says, I'm the one trained in the breath work here. The literature, the scientific evidence of using breath, which is the only part of the autonomic nervous system you can so easily control, using the breath to relax your muscles is the counter indicator of a sympathetic response. In other words, every time you have a fight or flight response, a term coined by Walter Cannon in Harvard, obviously Cannon was a doctor of great caliber. So every time you have, that was a little joke, but that's okay. Every time you have a response of stress, it will create somehow the tensility in your muscles and chronic stress, your adrenal glands shooting out these glucocorticoids and boom, you're tight. And that's natural in fight or flight. We're not talking about freeze, that's a dorsal vagal response, a little different. But fight or flight, the normal stress response, boom, boom, that's a tightness. That tightness is great. Why? It's going to give you back pain. They say there are two types of Americans, those who have back pain and those who will have back pain. So why is it great? Because you could use it for a biofeedback. If you feel your body is getting tight and you're not exercising, I tell busy executives, if you lift up your phone and your arm's getting tight, it's probably your phone is too heavy. It's probably an Android. Or, or you, have a, you see the caller ID and all of a sudden that's a trigger for your stress. If you feel your stress being triggered and you're not exercising and you're not engaged in an activity that's stress-related that's appropriate to that, and there are very few activities that are, but it's the normal life type of thing day to day. If your body is tight, that's a sign to you, you're having stress. If you use your breath to relax your muscles, you're actually stopping the stress response. And that's called our breath break, B-R-A-K-E. And we'll have this on an app very soon, a phone app. But I'll tell you about that app in a little bit. And then the ability to relax your muscles in the breath, in a somatic breathing. A lot of people do breathing. There are thousands and thousands of ways to breathe. The most important thing to do is to create movement with the breath. So when we do our breath break, we use our hands with the kids. Adults don't always like that. That's okay. You can choose your weapons, but kind of rub your hands together. Let your chin come forward. Watch me first. Let your chin come forward. Your shoulders, keep your back straight. We breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. If you're not comfortable breathing like that, you could choose any orifice you'd like. But the key is as you're breathing in, gently lift up your body, hold it. And then as you breathe out, feel your chin go down, your shoulders, your chest, like you're pushing out at the last part, push out a little bit more. So the breath is like a wave. You're going up and then what happens in every exhale is an RSA. 
there's a respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which means that the way you're breathing out, your body's actually relaxing. So your metabolism is going down a little bit, taking advantage of that downward turn by actually physically creating that like wave is a significant message to your brain to shut off the adrenal gland from shooting out glucocorticoids, shooting out bad stress chemicals. Those stress chemicals will kill you, but don't worry about it because that's bad for you. But the stress chemicals are a disaster. The ability to intervene in the process significantly stops those stress chemicals because if your body is relaxed, your brain's saying, what gives? There's nobody running after you to kill you. So rather than being controlled, the breath takes control. And it's not by accident, going back to Hebrew, the word for breath, nishima, is the same as nishama, which means soul. Capturing your soul, capturing your spirit, capturing your light. And actually we teach the children and we're breathing in, we're breathing in the light and when we're blowing out, we're blowing out the darkness. We ask the kids, what's darkness to you? And it could be pain, fear, anger, distress. They actually see it coming out of their mouths. So I'll share with you, I'm, I'm doing a lot of monologue and you'll interrupt me if you'd like. It's, you have control over the mute button, but this is fascinating. We did a study. I wanted to show the kids that they're really teaching the world because that's what Power Peace Purpose is, that you guys are teaching the world. So I was actually teaching this before COVID to Pope Francis at the Papal Palace. And afterwards, he, he grabbed my elbow and we talked about the children. He said the children should pray for him. You know, he felt the children were very holy. So I told him for a nice donation of a painting or two, we could talk about, you know, <laughs> making a Mishabera Shabbos for the Pope. And that's okay. I didn't go that far. I wasn't arrogant. I was very respectful. He was very kind. But the theme of the children teaching the world is so powerful. Now, I happened to get into Israel to visit my children and to visit our Kids Skin Cancer Israel program. We have a very large program in Israel. And it was on Tuesday, May 11th. Finally get in, and there were a lot of hurdles to getting in because of all of the rules and regulations. Got the right papers. Finally got in. Two hours after we got there, that's when the first air raid siren began. And my son lives north of Tel Aviv. So rest assured, we were running back and forth all night into the shelter. There were like 3,000 rockets that night, the next few days. I saw my granddaughter, six years old, beautiful little child, Kanai Nahara. She's turning white and began to shake. Because at six years old, she realized that something's going on. There are people trying to kill me. And that's why I'm in this little room with a metal door. But boom, we have to close like that. And my two and a quarter year old grandson was telling his mother when she was picking him up out of the bedroom, hurry, mommy, hurry. Also feeling her stress. That was a place that we were safe. We had a minute and 15 seconds to get into the shelter. We work with kids in trauma throughout Israel. Working with kids in the South and Beersheba and Stehot, they have 15 seconds in Stehot to get into the shelter. They were jealous of a minute and 15 seconds. There's so much trauma, there's so much stress. So I was working with kids all week, the week I was there, allowing them to become teachers, making videos of them, allowing them to teach others. And they were using the breath because it was meaningful and explain to them that this is why we have the situations we have in our lives, to take it and to use it to teach. That's power, peace, purpose. So we have a program called the ARI, the Adult Resilience Initiative, where adults learn from the children. And I figured, what's the worst incarceration for an adult in their mind? So we worked with a group of heroin and fentanyl addicts, right, SUD patients, and told them that if you can do this, you can help the kids. 
And we created a virtual reality with a grant from the state of Michigan, where literally the person was immediately surrounded by eight of our kids teaching how to do the breath break and explaining to them, we could teach the whole world how to do this. But if you do this, it gives purpose to a lot of kids and they have less pain. Can you do this for them? And the picture goes to literally thousands of children around them. And then we bring them back into a dojo, a karate studio of their mind. And the children are avatars. We explain to them the greatest enemy that we learn about in the martial arts is inside of our own brain. And our brain can lie to you. And a child with anorexia nervosa pops up, she's looking in the mirror. She's 300 pounds in the mirror and about 60 pounds in real life. You say, she's telling the truth. Studies indicate she's telling the truth. Her brain is lying to her. And then they choose a child who goes backwards with them through the optic nerve, backwards into their own brain. And they're surrounded by the synaptic universe. And we explain to them about neuroplasticity without using the term that you can change your brain, which is amazing. We can change our brains, but the journey to make that change is a journey of greatness. And when you can identify the beast, you can defeat that beast. And then they go down to the VTA nucleus acubens. Again, we don't use that language, but down to the whole mesolimbic dopamine pathway. And the limbic system turns into a beast and yells at them and says, what are you doing with those kids? Get away from those kids. They're nothing to you. I'm everything. And the beast has all the drug paraphernalia. I'm everything to you. Get rid of those kids. And the child stands next to the beast and says, your beast is a liar. You can breathe in the light and destroy your beast. And as they lift their head up in the VR, fills with light. When they breathe out, it makes holes in the beast. And the beast begins to shrink and to shrink and it disappears in a waterfall meditation. So we just published in the Journal of Pain Medicine how it changed the brains after seven weeks of pain perception and craving in drug addicts because wow. they wanted to help our kids. Wow. Okay. So I know you said you were doing a monologue, but I want I want to if I, if I can I, I want to yes, highlight as I'm listening highlight some of the things that you shared, which I like nodding the whole time. <laughs> so going even way back earlier, you're saying about control, and I find. There's so many parallels and a lot of people jump to separating between the medical struggles and, and mental struggles. And really there's, I, I don't see, I don't see much of a difference. And unfortunately, a lot of people still have that difference, but how people define what control is, is an essence of what we're talking about. Because if I define, and I work a lot with anxiety and a lot with OCD, so I very much relate to the brain lying to us. And just because a thought pops into our head doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. They could be yelling with a bullhorn saying, don't touch that, don't do that. That's risky, that's risky, stay away. If I had a thought in my head that I'm Superman and I go to the top of the roof and I stay up, up and away and then jump off, then splat goes schmool, but one second, but the thought was in my head. So I very much relate to that. And, you know, with the, with the clients that, that I work with, but if my definition of control is that this shouldn't have been here in the first place, I should be able to prevent it. Or when I say control is that just shove it away. But if my definition of control is like you were saying, use the movement and push it away. That's so much more empowering. But if I fall into the trap that to control is to prevent, then hundred percent physiologically, especially with panic, like panic disorders. So I have a sensation in my body and then I associated, okay, this means that I'm going to have a panic attack and I don't know if I'm going to have a heart attack. And then right away, then I get, then what happens when I think that then my body reacts and then I become more, and it just keeps on going in the cycle. And so whether it's panic, whether it's anxiety, whatever our association is, or the situation is keeps on compounding itself. So redefining what control is, is super, super important. 
I'll just share with you. I wrote a book called, it's available on Amazon if you look up Elimelech. It's called A Perfect God Created an Imperfect World Perfectly. The goal is to realize we don't control which mountains we walk up and down, but to find the inner strength to not be afraid of it and to walk up singing and dancing is greatness. And I assure your listeners that people are watching them. And when they respond, it's natural to respond with fear, anger, frustration, and push back. But when they could breathe in the light and blow out the darks and put that smile on their face and to say there are two Korean words we use all the time, Baruch Hashem, which literally means blessed is God, but it's not us blessing God. That the Rashpo, one of the rabbis described, it's really not Korean, it's really Hebrew for those listeners. It really is a brecha channel, a pool that everything in our life is being channeled through us. And it's an opportunity for greatness. It's a difference. I have two actually very important questions, at least for me, uh, on that. Number one is culturally. So we're referencing God or spirituality or things beyond ourselves. How does this translate cross-culturally? Different communities have different approaches to things and different upbringings, whether it's how they approach adversity. And some people come from uh, spiritual or religious backgrounds. Some people don't. Some people are more stoic and some people... So I'm curious, the program is international. Are there a difference culturally? Does this translate? I'm very curious to hear about that. That's a, that's a simple answer. And that is that we use the martial arts as a metaphor. However people take the light, that's theirs. You know, people, I'm very comfortable talking about God, so my best friends are religious. But that's not the issue. The issue is that the martial arts creates tremendous credibility because it's associated with power. And the martial arts uses this breathing, uses this context, uses this spiritual light without associating it with that in any way that people find offensive or affronting because it's karate. So that's number one. That's like the, gets me under the radar. I was talking to an actress by the name of Demi Moore about healing with the power of light. And she says to me, Rabbi, that's very Kabbalistic. So I said to her in Yiddish, did you learn with Rabbi Madonna? Her Yiddish was terrible, so she didn't get it. But everyone has a different bend on that light and where it comes from and what it is, etc. But it's really easy for people to surrender to the feeling of that light when you use something like karate, which becomes a, a really universal metaphor. Okay, thank you. Now, so the second question that I was having, which you started to answer, because you said that we don't have a choice of what mountain we're on. And I remember actually working with a particular client and we we're talking about focusing on what's in our control versus what's not in our control. And so many of us spend so much energy and brain space and time in the hamster wheel of trying to control what we can't control. And we kept on talking about it and talking about it until I, I almost literally saw the light bulb above his head, but he was almost like disturbed. He's like, oh my gosh, Shmuel, there's really like, barely anything that we're in control of. Oh my goodness. It like hit him how little we actually have control of. Now I imagine whether it's children, whether it's adults, and I'm actually curious to hear children see the world through a different lens, usually more refreshing lens than adults do. But the idea, there's so many people out there who are dealt really tough challenges, not just singular challenges, but chronic challenges and waves after waves and the thought of this is unfair and like you mentioned anger before this is life is life is unfair this is not fair i did nothing to deserve this and 
So you started to answer, but can you talk a little bit more about how this approach, this mentality, this lens sort of helps people reshape their beliefs about life being unfair? So I think all of that is connected to our mantra of power, peace, purpose. The realization that we can bring in this energy, whatever you call it, that you can create that peace inside of oneself, but only when there's a feeling of purpose. The power of purpose is extraordinary. People are very skeptical whether these homeless drug addicts would care anything about children with cancer. They had tears in their eyes. Thank you, Rabbi, for letting me help a child with cancer. The moment the conversation is not about them, we have this this beautiful 30-week curriculum for for schools, the Hero Circle curriculum, 15 minutes a day, social-emotional learning, which we've experimented with in Detroit, and now we're expanding outwards, where children learn that the challenges in their lives are opportunities, and they help others. So we don't go into inner-city schools and say, hey, you kids are suffering from racism and hunger and trauma and high ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experience and all of that. We don't go in, we go in and say, hey, we got a favor to ask you. We have kids that we're working with in Zimbabwe and Zambia who don't have pain medication and they're in the hospital for months without their parents even. If you could do this and join their hero circle, it would make them feel a lot better. Could you do this for them? And then we talk about what to do, how to restructure, how to regulate, how to deal with the challenges, but it's a different approach. And the beauty of it is it's simplicity. And when they realize that they're doing it for someone else and look beyond themselves, and I can only say this to all of your listeners, and I was probably well gone beyond my time, but everyone has a purpose. And sometimes the people who have been dealt the most difficult hands in their lives are people who can become and have become the greatest teachers because we learn from them. We're inspired by them. We are moved and people don't realize when you could respond with this part of the brain the place of bringing in light, rather staying stuck down here. People are expecting you. Hey, you know, your car just got smashed. You just got a terrible diagnosis. Your kids ran away from what? <laughs> you should be like this. And you're responding with light. You're inspiring people around you. You're bringing light into a world of darkness. And that illuminates the entire planet. And that's the theme of power, peace, purpose. Wow. I couldn't agree more. Giving a person a why is probably the most valuable thing because, and it comes up a lot because if I, let's say I'm working with someone and fabulous, they have all the techniques and training and we could do this and do that. But if there is no why, then it's just ultimately not going to happen. There has to be a why. How would you describe the differences between children who face adversity? In this case, it's medical illness, but really any adversity and adults It's very important to know that, and again, this takes us on a different path, but it's very important to know that children are not little adults. Their brains are different. We used to think it was a matter of mass, then we thought it was networking, now it's myelination and pruning of of dentrites. But whatever it is, the lower parts of the child's brain are very promiscuous. So their anger, their fear, their anxiety is very great. The ability to create that rational response is much more challenged. Most of the time, the ability to connect to a child means talking to the child in a language that they emotionally get. And part of the beauty of the power that we give to the children is that their amygdala is connected to that. That's boom. They get that. They want to be powerful. And when they're given a tough diagnosis to anything but powerful, they're prodded, they're poked. And any other culture, what kids go through in the hospital is called abuse. Nobody should touch you there. Nobody. 
and and if they're a teaching hospital, hi Jack, and all of a sudden their cupboards are open and they're being to teach children that they're powerful. That's really the key to it. With adults, it's the same as the kids, so we talk slower, but their brain is different. Their brain is different. So we give these seminars to adults, and I, I do a lot of teaching. But it, it's fascinating. You mentioned OCD and the caudate nucleus and serotonin, the different ways that we can implicate this. And again, happy to you know continue the conversation. But there's so much about how we can use power of peace purpose in our lives. Yeah, I mean, we can go on and on. So just a, a couple more questions for the people that are still with us, specifically to illness. But again, I think it applied to others. What kind of guidance do you give to the adults in the child's life on their responses and their reactions? Because the children see the adults and they feed off of how they're reacting. You get you told the story about your your grandchildren and feeding off of their mother and their stress. And I would imagine that there's this natural instinct to the seriousness of the matter and be all on top. And I don't know if that's helpful or not, but what kind of guidance would you give for parents when their children is going through this? So we obviously spend a lot of time talking to parents and parents who uh, unfortunately have lost children, parents who are dealing with kids in chronic illness, acute illness. Uh, that's a very large part of the work that we do. You know, Eric Erickson coined the term that you're describing was mutual regulation in the early 50s, and they could feed off each other. So we teach the parents how to do our breath work as well. Very important. But we always tell them, never tell the child to breathe. Never get the kid to do it by telling them, do it. Always go back to the job. How do you do that again? I'm feeling stressed. Just yesterday on our global call, one of our instructors from England, uh, not from England, but it was working with a child in England because we do Zoom now. So this instructor has been working with a family from England and the mother wrote a note. The mom woke up in the middle of the night in a panic attack, sweating profusely, lost control of her body, but she couldn't move. And she was calling out. Her eight-year-old daughter came in, grabbed her hand and did the breath break with her did breath work for like 10 minutes, helped the mom to self-regulate. When the, the mom sat up and she was fine and she gave her daughter a hug and she wrote us a, a note immediately, you won't believe what just happened. So to allow the children to become teachers to the world, but when the parents learn it, they're able to influence the child as long as the child remains in the center. And then I imagine in those situations where a parent loses a child, if they can take the torch of having purpose and extending that so the child is not here. Yes, what we explain to parents that the grieving follows the same neurological pathways as stress. And an ongoing onslaught of stress chemicals is bad for your health and nobody needs you to get sick now. You still have to take care of your the kids and your husband or your wife or the this or the that. We need to stay healthy. So no one's going to take your pain away, but let's work on identifying the tightness in your body. And usually when the children were part of the program, we're going to do Johnny's breath and focus on his light. And in the book, I actually have 30 meditations, including to parents. What's cool about it is that there are 30 QR codes. And I tell the reader, if you don't know what a QR code is, here's a web link. And if you don't know what a web link is, you probably have no stress. You don't need the book. But every time somebody listens to one of the meditations, the numbers go up in front of the children, letting them know that they're teaching the world. That's amazing. I love it. This is very inspiring to me and I'm sure for everyone else. Again, we can go on and on and on and maybe we'll do this again. I very much appreciate your time. How can people learn more? Please go on our website, Kids Kicking Cancer. Obviously, we survive on donations, people connecting us to foundations and to people who can help us. Ultimately, reaching a million kids is definitely within our shot, but we need help doing it. 
So as we're growing and growing across the globe, we really want to make power, peace, purpose, a mantra for everyone to use that no matter what you face in your life, can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. So thank you for your time and wish you about Shalom and great, great to meet you, sir. And hopefully we'll meet you in person one day. Yes, yes. Thank you.